There is this dark undertow which is connecting us all globally, and it is flowing via the technology platforms. And that is why I am here to address you directly, the gods of Silicon Valley. Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and Larry Page and Sergey Brin and Jack Dorsey, because you set out to connect people, and you are refusing to acknowledge that the same technology is now driving us apart. And what you don't seem to understand is that this is bigger than you, and it's bigger than any of us. And it is not about left or right, or leave or remain, or Trump or not. It's about whether it's actually possible to have a free and fair election ever again. Because as it stands, I don't think it is. And so my question to you is: Is this what you want? Is this how you want history to remember you? As the handmaidens to authoritarianism that is on the rise, all. Across the world, and my question to everybody else is: Is this what we want—to sit back and play with our phones as this darkness falls? That was Carol Cadwallader, a crusading British journalist, giving a TED talk in Silicon Valley, as captured in a gripping new documentary, *The Great Hack*. The film is a penetrating look at how personal data is vacuumed up by America's tech giants and then weaponized for political purposes. The focus of the film is Cambridge Analytica, a firm that exploited Facebook data on millions of Americans to help Donald Trump's campaign target its ads during the 2016 election, riling up voters, stoking divisions, playing on emotions of hate and fear in ways that may well have influenced the outcome. We've heard a lot about what the Russians did during 2016, and how, as Robert Mueller recently warned us, they are still doing to this day to influence our politics. But what if the biggest manipulators of all were not foreign adversaries, but the country's own homegrown tech firms, with a big boost from a secretive company that, as one subject in the film says, is straight out of a James Bond movie? We'll discuss with the directors of the film, Jahan Nojam and Karim Amir. On this bonus episode of Skullduggery, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have. Sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. We are now joined by the brilliant filmmakers of the Great Hack, uh, Jahan Nojem and Karim Amir. Welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having us. So much to talk about in this film: the use of personal data that we all put on Facebook and other social media platforms, and how it is now used to manipulate us in political campaigns. What got you interested in wanting to do this movie, Jane? 
It goes way back for me, my fascination with tech and also information and the dissemination of information and how it affects our reality. So in 2001, I released a film called Startup.com, which was when everybody wanted to start an internet company and be God online. And we were basically filming a company that was putting government online. And we watched as these two guys raised $60 million and then everything crashed. And then Soon after that, in 2004, I made a film called Control Room, which you came yeah, to. Which I well remember about and, Al Jazeera and the Iraq War. Right. And so what was fascinating to me about that subject was that I had family and friends in Egypt and in the U.S., and depending on what station they were watching, whether it was Jazeera or Fox or CNN, they had a different, completely different view of reality of what the war... Kind of like America kind of today. Like now, uh-huh. But now it's like control room on steroids. So yes. you can be in the same household, but have your own personalized news feed and have a completely different view of what's going on. And so how could people have a conversation with each other? So that was sort of watching that was was felt like this was an area that I should jump back into. Um, and then after Control Room, I made a film with my partner Kareem called The Square, which was about the Egyptian revolution. And in that film, we saw how these very same tech platforms were incredible tools for change, holding government accountable, bringing together people to imagine a future together, and amassing people, bringing people together in a way that never had happened before. And Silicon Valley took a lot of credit for those tools and for bringing about the Arab Spring. And um, and so, you know, I mean, it, it was an incredible moment. Um, and we we celebrated Facebook and Twitter for, for this. And very personally as well, when I was arrested... You guys posted a picture. Yeah, that's how we found Jahan. I mean, she had disappeared in the middle of the protests when things got pretty crazy, and we couldn't find her, and we didn't know where she, where she was being held. But a lawyer friend of ours posted a photo of her on Twitter, and it spread, and someone saw that photo and saw her in one of the Egyptian prisons and identified and tweeted back saying, I know where she is. And then we rushed there, and that's how we found her, and that's how we got her out of jail. So we've seen the benefits of social media being a incredible tool that can transform all kinds of lives and improve our lives in many ways. But I think we also saw that pendulum of technology swing the other way. I think the difference, perhaps, from our perspective is that you know the Middle East is often ground zero for a lot of things that happen in the world. And... Our romance with technology being this inherently positive, all-the-time love affair type of situation kind of ended earlier. So we saw that like technology is a tool. It could be great, but it could be pretty horrible, too, when oh. people get radicalized on ISIS using Twitter and YouTube as well. So Within a year, we kind of <laughs> saw the pendulum yeah. swing in the other direction where these authoritarian governments were using those same tools to find dissidents. Yeah, right? the, yeah the tech people like to say, well, technology is neutral. It just yeah. depends on how people use it. But I want to ask you guys about the subject of this movie or the the kind of narrative vehicle, which is Cambridge Analytica, you know, which is this company that harvested all this personal data on basically every every American, and they yeah. used it to help Donald Trump get elected. Did the same thing in Britain with with Brexit. And let me start. Let me set this up with a little personal story because back in the fall of 2015, we were in different offices at Yahoo News, and a gentleman in a tweed coat showed up, kind of a odd-looking guy and, you know, sort of thin guy with glasses. And uh, one of my reporters was interviewing him. 
Well, it turned out to be Alexander Nix, who was the head of Cambridge Analytica, and we had assigned her to do a story. The anecdote that I remember, the lead of her story was, as they're chatting, he looks down and he sees her leopard print shoes. And he says to the reporter, Liz Goodwin, you know what? I'm going to have to put that in your personality file. <gasps> wow. That was her lead. So, And what she wrote about was how Cambridge Analytica did these personality tests. You know, lots of Americans, they got them to take these tests that looked at all these different personality traits like neuroticism and you know, I can't remember what Openness. they all were. Openness. Openness. Yeah. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what Cambridge Analytica did, how they did it, and then what the implications of that was. So Cambridge Analytica had been in the election business around the world. 150, um, some 140 over 150 elections, elections they, around the world. They, they had, had been in. participating in perfecting these mm-hmm. tools. Some of those tools involved voter suppression yeah, but their before mother, they used those same tools back in the United States and in the U.K., yeah, so their mother company at the SCL group had been doing PSYOP work as a military contractor for the United States and the British government around the world doing these kinds of operations. Remember when you would hear the battle for the hearts and minds of the Iraqi people. So those are the types of contracts that these guys would get to influence a local population to change their behavior. Because, you know, since the images, as Jahan showed in control room of dead American soldiers or dead British soldiers coming home from these faraway lands was, was not something that was agreeable. So people wanted to kind of have these changes happen in different countries, but without having physical combat. So that, that's kind of where this PSYOP world was born. Uh, and there was a, a lot more money. World. There was a lot more money for it post 9-11. Yeah. So. And so basically they're doing all this work around the world. And Nix is part of the company. His father had shares in it. And he and it was set up by these two brothers, the Oaks brothers, who are these MI6 guys, uh, former MI6 guys. And he says, you know what, we can take this to a whole other level. And he realizes that because he sees the power of technology. Where does he see it? He sees it with Barack Obama. So he sees Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 be the first place where social media is used in an incredible way to galvanize an entire voter block that had not been really targeted and spoken to with effective messaging that could sell a dream of hope under the banner of Yes, We Can and really lead to a historic result of the first African-American president in American history happening, right? And that was such an incredible moment. So what they identified was like, wait, there's an amazing opportunity to do this, but for the Republicans. And that's where the work began. Now, what was happening is when you fast forward from 2008 to 2016, eight years in the timeline of technology is a millennia. So the level of data sophistication, level of targeting, the amount that we as citizens had given up of our personal data, which is basically the simple way to think of it is is this, is Every time you transact in this connected world, which we're always a part of, you are leaving behind these digital footprints of yourself, right? And those digital footprints you have consented are fully kind of owned and controlled by these tech companies. We have kind of been participating under the notion that this is the small admission fee we pay to be members of this connected world. So they take all this data, they have all this information about you, 
And Cambridge starts realizing that instead of trying to use demographics, which is the way that a lot of political polling used to work of, so what did this person think four years ago when they voted and how can we tailor a message to them about that? They use psychographics, which instead gave people a more like a, a pulse reading of where they actually felt in the moment. How could they get that? They got that because the data analytics are so up to speed in terms of how of what you like, what you don't like, where you are, your agreeableness, how your behavior has changed, if you've been drinking more, if you've been buying more, if you've had financial difficulties, if you're, there's an increase in your credit card swiping, if there's an increase in your posting, all of your behavior is being kind of targeted and tracked, and they were able to come up with the perfect messaging on Facebook, which was the battleground. And the proof of that is that the Hillary campaign ran 66,000 ads on Facebook. The Trump campaign ran up to 5.9 million. Okay, so look, the bad guy in your movie or the you know, the bad entity is Cambridge Analytica, which uh, at one point is compared to uh, something out of a Bond film. But the original sin is by Facebook itself, which allowed all this data to go to Cambridge Analytica, which they weren't supposed to do in the first place, correct? 100%. I mean, if we look at what happened yesterday with the Mueller testimony talking about Russian meddling, right? And we look at the Cambridge Analytica story, what they share in common is Facebook. So the vulnerability that allowed for Russian meddling is Facebook. The vulnerability that allowed for Cambridge Analytica to succeed is Facebook. And if you remember what the word hack means, it's it's the ability to exploit a vulnerability. And that's kind of what's happened here. And that's why we called the film The Great Hack. So I, I just want to be clear in my own mind on this. Facebook collects all this data mm-hmm. you know, every time we yeah. you know post anything on Facebook. Did Cambridge Analytica pay for this information that they got from Facebook? Did they just, how did it get transferred information about millions of us from Facebook to this British firm, Cambridge Analytica? How did that work? So Kogan sold it to them. So Professor Kogan got the information, got the data for free from Facebook and then sold that data to Cambridge Analytica. How does he get it? No, who's Professor Kogan and how does he get the data for free? So Professor Kogan was a data analytics professor at Cambridge University. And he had a deal with Facebook that because he was a data scientist, he could get access to some of their user data and kind of use it for academic experimentation and exploration of sorts. So, and this was a common practice by Facebook. They allowed all these app developers essentially to experiment with the data that they have to come up with different ideas and things that they could be used for. And remember, this is all happening under this time that's been called the data wild west, where nobody really understood what was happening with their data because they couldn't see it. And everybody, as Carol Codwaller, the journalist in the film says, was just giving it away. You know, this- But those terms and conditions, which none of us read, but we all agree to so we can use the platform, do they allow for the sharing of information? I thought they're supposed to be somewhere in there saying, we're not going to share your information with somebody else. I mean, it depends on the, on the user agreement, but with Facebook, we are 
allowing our data to be shared on all of these user agreements, most of these user agreements. And they, they do allow for the data to be shared. Well, so, they, so well, did well, Facebook it, do something it, wrong it, here it under go, its own it, so terms it, of service? So it goes to this. It's like in the United States, we currently don't own our data whatsoever. We give permission for Google to read all our emails and Microsoft to scan all our documents. We have surrendered all of our privacy to technology companies because we're, the base assumption is that this ethos of break fast and move things is just going to lead to ultimate innovation and prosperity and can't break go wrong. Break things and move fast. Sorry, break. <laughs> yeah, sorry, break. <laughs> but I think what's happened is is what's happened is there's we're now seeing that what's getting broken is fundamental, you know, societal fabric that holds the whole thing together, like the word truth and whether it works anymore when there's weaponized information or supposedly living in a society that has these quote unquote shared values when everyone lives in their own customized reality that's propelled by an algorithm that just puts you in a filter bubble that just promotes your own confirmation bias constantly. But I think it's important to, to note that we do not have the same rights in the United States. So yeah, yeah. in Europe, you have to opt in in order for these tech platforms to share your name, your date of birth, where you live. In the United States, you're already opted in, and it's very hard to opt out or even to know what companies have on you. So mm -hmm. that is why in the film, David Carroll was able to try to find out what data Cambridge Analytica had on him by using a UK lawyer. Right, so he sued to find out what data they had. But he Correct. sued in the UK. But he, he, sued in the UK. In the UK. he yeah. could not have sued in the US because in the yeah. US, there's no law yeah. that says We're that the beginning to change to... those laws. California, I think, is yes. moving Correct. in that direction. But it went beyond just sharing information and, and data, right? <laughs> because didn't Facebook also actually uh, have their people working with Cambridge Analytica? They had people working. Project Alpha? Was that Alamo. Project, Project Alamo. Project Alamo. Yeah. So, Alamo. That, so, yeah. Yeah. so they had people working with the Where Trump campaign. Where did that campaign. name come from, by the way? I mean, how did they get to the Alamo? Because what, it, was what was based, the, like, it was based in. The last in, stand. It was, was based. So Project Alamo, which was Jared Kushner, was at, was at the helm of it with Brad Parscale, who's now the campaign manager for Trump 2020, was headquartered in San Antonio. So that's where the name came from. And what was happening there was the kind of understanding what the districts were that needed to be focused on and getting up to speed information on who these quote unquote persuadable voters were and how to bombard them with the right message. And especially voters who had high degrees of openness and high degrees of neuroticism, because those voters could be the most persuadable with fear campaigns. Well, yeah, and let me, that's actually a point I wanted to bring up because one of the other things that these platforms do, Facebook in particular, and you had, I think, Roger McAmey in the in the movie making this point. We had Who's him on a podcast. On uh, he wrote yes. this. He was an early investor in, in Facebook and wrote this really brilliant book about Facebook. But he makes the point that Facebook has kind of optimized its algorithms to really exploit or prey on people's emotions and fear being a really big one. And of course, you talked about hope in the 2008 election with the Obama campaign, but 2016 was a campaign about fear. So how does that work? Well, that's right. And I think it brings us to the point of micro-targeting can also be good, right? It doesn't always, it's not inherently a bad thing. So people can be found who are interested in the environment, et cetera, right? But what was disturbing about the 2016 campaign was unlike 
the sort of more remedial use of it in Obama's campaign, where it was focused on hope and positivity. In this campaign, in the 2016 campaign, it was fear-based. It was taking a message and making over a thousand different kinds of ads to send out to people depending on what your personality type was. So in the end, are you really voting for the candidate or the issues, Mm -hmm. or are you just being targeted with messages that because of all of the data you're releasing, they know exactly how to manipulate you to vote for the candidate. Here's a simple way to look at it as well, right? We're living in this moment where so many people around the world are convinced that their phones are listening in on them, right? Because they feel that things are happening in their, you know, filters or in their the ads they get that no one could possibly know unless they had heard something they had whispered or said or mentioned. But that's not what's happening. Your phone is not listening in on you. All the scientific evidence shows that that's not what's happening. What's happening, though, is that because there is so much information about you, as Cambridge bragged, 5,000 data points about every American voter. I mean, could you name 5,000 things about Mike, you know, or about yourself? (laughs) We're like an old married couple, so I probably could about Mike. That may not be the best example, but I take your point. just don't want it shared with anybody. Uh, Look, there are two stars of your film. One is Carol Cadwallader, who is the British journalist who did great crusading work um, uh, in exposing a lot of this. But the other is is this fascinating character, Brittany Kaiser, a former Obama campaign worker who then goes to work for Cambridge Analytica and works on the Trump campaign and then becomes a whistleblower. So tell us, uh, Jahan, about Brittany Kaiser, uh, how you found her and how she came to do what she did. Brittany was like hitting the jackpot when it comes to finding a character in a film. We completely rely on characters to basically take you into worlds that you would never otherwise get to see. And here was a person who had worked on the Obama campaign, volunteered for Obama, volunteered for Dean, and then began working for Cambridge Analytica, pitched the Trump campaign, wrote the first contract with Trump, and then, as we were following her, was called on her 30th birthday to be investigated by Mueller, had connections with Julian Assange. And so in this one person, in a very human way, we could be taken into this world. And it was a complicated world to be taken into. It was when we started this project, we didn't know anything about Cambridge Analytica. There was kind of a deficit of language about this topic, similar to the environmental movement at the beginning. And it wasn't visual. It's something that's happening in our brains and on our computer screens. So how could you see it? It was invisible. So how do you make the invisible visible? You had to find these characters to take you into these worlds. And with Brittany, we got a call from a woman named Jess Search who introduced us to Paul Hilder. Paul Hilder was working for about a a year, I think, on talking with Brittany and encouraging her to come out with the information she had. Ultimately, she was only one of two people who came out to speak out against Cambridge Analytica and let people know the information they had. It was her and Chris Wiley. And Chris Wiley wasn't even working for Cambridge Analytica at the time of Brexit and Trump. So she was really the key character, the key person that could give us information and give the world information about what was happening during that very controversial time period. 
So we get in touch with her, and she said, I'm about to, my life is about to turn absolutely crazy. I'm about to come out with all of this information against a lot of very powerful people and huge companies, and uh, I'm going to go to Thailand, and I'm going to be there for a few days. It's going to be relatively quiet. I can't tell you exactly where I'm going to be on the phone. Everything was through Signal, but she told us the airport that we could fly to, and then she would give us further instructions from there. Signal, by the way, the encrypted messaging app. Yes. Those, uh, yes. Most, pe- most listeners of Skullduggery probably know that, but just in case. <laughs> probably listen to Skullduggery yeah. on the yes. Signal. Yeah. Yeah. Have it well, what, so what was her motivation first for going to Cambridge Analytica and then uh, what kind of um, inspired her to leave and become a whistleblower? So when you watch the film, as everybody hearing this hopefully will, you'll come to a part where she tells very personally why she felt she had to join Cambridge. At a certain point, she her family lost all of her money all of their money, and she needed to get a job that paid her. She could no longer volunteer. So I think that was part of the reason she took the job. I think she was also very intrigued with what Cambridge Analytica was doing. At the time, before the Trump campaign and Brexit, they were working all over the world. They were working not only in in elections, but also using these same tools to, for example, have women get to the hospital in Ghana who were afraid of hospitals. So so it wasn't all... Negative. Yeah, Cambridge Analytica provided, you know, so often people who work on campaigns and people who work in human rights, it's a labor of love. And a lot of times you're not able to see measurable results to the work you're doing. And what Cambridge Analytica was providing was, hey, here's a way to actually track you said these things and these people changed their behavior or didn't. These people in these actual constituencies shifted. You, know, you could track the changing of human behavior in a way that was recordable. And I think that the science of that was fascinating for a lot of people. I mean, I've, I've met you know, over 25 people who worked for the company. Uh, none of them except for Brittany and, and one other would agree to come out publicly. But... I don't find like any of them having one set of political values. They weren't even primarily more conservative than other people or right wing or anything like that. It was actually, I think what they all had in common was the, they were fascinated by power. And I think it's the power of being able to be at the advent of something that is quite powerful. But, but with Brittany, it seemed like it, it started in her life, with power, maybe power, but connected to ideals. Yes. That seems maybe to have evolved. I think it did. And I think that, you know, I think that it, what was fascinating about Brittany's arc was she was there at the birth of this marriage between technology and political advertising and had seen... Obama come to power and had seen and then she was there at the kind of complete swinging of the pendulum in the other direction where it was used with Donald Trump and I think in a way it's with Britney we th- we felt that by using her story and her journey she could kind of serve as a mirror for how we all got here and how if she's complicit in part of this journey how we all may have some degree of complicity as well she actually worked on the trump campaign for cambridge analytica well she well right. she but well what she you have pictures of her but what, no, what inside she, the well, what she did actually world. more because the, the, the degree mm-hmm. to working and not working on the trump campaign is is something that's very disputed among what Cambridge did and didn't do exactly. It's very complicated. So, But what she did do 100% is she pitched Donald Trump and, his, and Corey Lewandowski at Trump Tower 
with Alexander Nix. So what happened was Steve Bannon got a call, or Steve as she calls him, and said, you know, send me your British guys. So she was there with Alexander Nix. They took the train in the morning the next day. They get to Trump Tower. And they realize that they're on the set of The Apprentice, which is where the operation was being run by. And they pitched them the whole Cambridge Analytica pitch on how they can do it better. And they got the gig. And she actually drafted the contract because she's a lawyer as well for Cambridge and the Trump campaign. So she was definitely an integral part of that operation and, you know, was a was a, a right hand to Alexander Nix, the CEO, in terms of how they then parlayed getting Trump contract and Trump's victory into doing things all over the world as well. So just in winding down, I, I want to come back to Facebook yeah. because there's a character, I don't remember who it is, but someone in the movie says that at the end of the day, it's not really about Cambridge Analytica. It's, it's about the tech platforms. As long as there are these tech platforms that are unregulated or underregulated, you're going to have Cambridge Analytica is doing the kinds of things that they did. So Mark Zuckerberg is in the, you see him in the movie, he testifies before Congress. At the end of the day, having done this movie, do you think that Zuckerberg, Facebook, the other platforms are going to change their ways, that they will be regulated in ways that deal with some of these kinds of well, challenges been, They've just been fined $5 billion. And their stock, and their stock went up okay. that same yeah, day. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. is stock, Facebook, their stock $5 billion. They, 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 they drop in the bucket. They, they made a million dollars. They, they made a billion, billion off of it. A billion dollars off of that. So, that, the, you know, as, as Kara Swisher says, as a parking ticket. I, look, I think that... We have to understand, in my opinion, that Facebook has become a crime scene. That's just the reality of what's happened. And we have we have rule of law, which is how we've maintained Western civilization this long. And we should use the rule of law to actually understand what's happened and hold power accountable, as we always have. Just because it's happening in the sphere of technology does not mean that it should be above the rule of law. The problem has been is that we're dealing with these borderless, monopolistic tech platforms that don't operate under the auspices of one country or another. You know, I mean, Mark, the British Parliament was unable to get Mark Zuckerberg to even show up and attend their investigation. The, the, the conclusion of the parliamentary inquiry said the election laws are not fit for purpose and called Facebook digital gangsters. I mean, this is British Parliament. This isn't tabloids. Like, this is what we're dealing with. And yet there's no accountability. You know, the way it's being framed from Facebook's perspective is Cambridge Analytica were these bad actors. They broke into the and they broke in in the middle of the night. They stole people's things. And it yet happened on our watch. We were like, we didn't have the security alarm system on. And we're so sorry, guys. And we'll do better next time. That is baloney. The reality is, is that Cambridge Analytica, yes, they understood how to use the Facebook data. But the weaponization of information, that's Facebook. The weapon is Facebook's algorithm. The brilliance is Facebook's algorithm, not Cambridge Analytica. So with Cambridge gone now, we are just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable than we were in 2016. And we've got 2020 around the corner and nothing has been done to protect the sanctity of the American election system. And that's why this is not a partisan issue. This should be something that people from both sides of the aisle are coming together and say, hey, guys, we have a red alert here. The, the basic system doesn't work. Why? Because how can you have a democratic society when you do not have the ability to trust information and you do not have the ability to form community? 
Can I just uh, add just one end point to that? Because probably the spookiest part of the film for me was the experience in Trinidad, Tobago, right? Where Cambridge Analytica is using uh, you lay out a scenario where there's tension between uh, the uh, I guess the native. Um, Indians and the native uh, black population. Black population, and Cambridge Analytica comes in with you know this huge set of data and uses it to suppress the vote by who was it the Indians or the uh, or the blacks? Well, uh, the idea was yeah. we will create this do so campaign, and in right. do so campaign, don't vote, right? Right. Um, but what? they realized was that the kids of the Indian families were going to end up doing what their parents told them to do. And they and Cambridge Analytica was working for the Indian side. And so they realized that by doing this campaign, ultimately the Indians would go vote anyway and they would win the election. And they did. Yeah. And and how did they persuade them not to vote because they they led a campaign to make not voting cool and they targeted young people the and the youth to kind of promote boycotting the vote and so they were able to suppress the vote that way and that's what we're dealing with here we're dealing with voter suppression tactics we're dealing with military grade information systems and we're dealing with psychological experiments happening on the American public i think where we've entered into is we have to realize that all of our data right now is part of this new era called surveillance capitalism that we're living in, which I know Roger McNamee talks about, Shoshana Zuboff coined the term, and this is the new system that we, that we participate in. And we have to decide as a society, as you know, if we've become the commodity, what parts of ourselves are for sale and not for sale? And that's why the word that we're asking for as we rally behind this question of data rights becoming human rights is consent. We should have a consensual relationship with technology whereby we understand what we're doing and not doing. And we shouldn't be Who duped. Who has the time to read those terms well, of service agreements I, I, and the fine print? I get that it. Nobody actually gets. Beyond I get it, but this I is. I get it, but would you ever? Sentence. Would yeah. you ever? Would you ever do that with a written contract? Just sign yeah. it. Sign away without even looking at it. No way. Right. Right. So we should all so, have a lawyer before we sign on to Facebook. Right. Right. We should. Oh, so you have to have a lawyer sitting next to you. At your I computer. don't think we need right. to have a lawyer. I think we just need to tell technologists that we should have technology and ethics work hand in hand. We this idea that you know the cost of innovation is giving up all your privacy. I don't think is sustainable. And I think that we're seeing now people around the country starting to ask more difficult questions and demand more from these platforms. Even in our, even with our characters in the film, and you know, there are different. There's a debate on how it should be handled, obviously, and different views on how it should be handled. So, for example, Brittany feels like you should own all of your data, like property, right? And that you make the decision as to how that get sold so that you can sell your medical data or whatever you want to sell. But it, but the purpose is that you're yeah. consenting. Others, like Roger McNamee, believe that, no, data, this kind of data, this personal data should not be for sale at all. Well, I do think uh, the more people who watch this movie are going to uh, be more autonomous about their own uh, right. data and make these kinds of decisions. It is a... Uh, you know, this is a fascinating conversation. It's a brilliant movie. Everybody should see The Great Hack, which is streaming now on Netflix. Yes. Um, so thank you, uh, Jehan and Kareem, for uh, thank joining you us for, on Skullduggery. Thank, thank you for, for having us. us. And thank we just you. want to say, you know, one way that perhaps some of your listeners could think about this is 
the reason why this is all coming to surface right now in such an alarming way is because there's been this deficit of language. There's been no imagery to show what's happening. This is similar to the advent of the environmental movement where people were feeling this anxiety of the climate, but we didn't have words like climate change. We didn't have movies like Inconvenient Truth. We couldn't see. And then when we started seeing, you know, the images of the marine life being destroyed by oil spills and things of that nature, those images could inspire people to do something about it. Now we're starting to come up with these languages and these visualizations of what's happening with our data, which is what our intention was with this movie. And I think that, you know, what it's going to take is a similar type of accountability movement, you know, because nobody believes that the oil executives used to wake up and say, oh, how am I going to pollute the climate this way this week? But that's what was happening. right? And it took accountability and government intervention to hold them to account. The same way, nobody believes Mark Zuckerberg wakes up and says, hey, how are we going to wreck democracy today with our platforms? But that's what's happening. So we have these tools. you know. We've, we have a tradition of antitrust in this country. We have rule of law. We just got to use it. Well, thanks a lot. And the first step for everybody is to watch The Great Hack. Thanks to filmmakers Jahan Nujam and Kareem Amir for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.